We've been in a teaching series uh, out of the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we've got a reading guide. Are you guys reading? Are you guys reading Nehemiah? Is anybody following along? We don't read here? Some of them? You know, they, you, you can listen to the audio of these things, too, but, you know, I made it extra special. I, I, put, a, I put fun books in there you've never read before, like, like Haggai and Zechariah. I know you haven't read that. Don't even be, mm-hmm, no, uh-uh. So you need to get after it. Pick up a reading guide. It'll also help you keep up with kind of, uh, kind of where we're at. So to bring you up to speed, Nehemiah is, uh, has this, this deep heartbrokenness for Jerusalem, for the wall around Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this place of, of, of God's presence, this place of God's identity. And when, when Nehemiah finds that the wall has been completely destroyed, he's just broken because he wants God's kingdom to come, for it, it to land on earth in a very tangible way. And he prays to God. He said, God, please, we need to rebuild this wall. I repent of our sins. I repent of my sins. God, if you would just make the king favorable to me, I'll be your guy. And the hand of God, this comes up again and again. If you've read the book of Ezra, if if you're reading along with us in Nehemiah, the hand of God is how Nehemiah says it. The hand of God was on me. And Nehemiah approaches the king, and the king grants Nehemiah's request. At this time, the, Nehemiah is just the head butler. I mean, he's, he's a servant. He's a nobody. You would expect kings to go and build cities and build walls and do great things, but Nehemiah is just a servant. And yet, because the hand of God is on him, King Artaxerxes, the great king of the Persian Empire, grants Nehemiah's request and gives him everything that he's asked for gives him access to all the materials and even gold and treasures out of his own treasury to go and accomplish this task that God has put on his heart. And Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he surveys the situation and it's not good. And he calls the people out of their disgrace. He says, let's do something about this. Let's build this wall. Let's bring God's kingdom back. And the people say, we're in. We'll do it. And they begin this great work, but like all great works, it doesn't come without opposition. It doesn't come without difficulty. And we read some of that last week of Sand, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah are, are, are critical of what's going to happen. They're, uh, they, they, said they have these awesome, really helpful comments like, you know, even if a fox walked across that wall, it would fall apart. But there's also this, this, this thing that happens, too, in the great work. Even, even the Israelites who are building the wall, they begin to complain. How are we going to get this done? How can we make this happen? This, this is too much for us. This work is too much. But Nehemiah, if you remember, he lines them up shoulder to shoulder. You guys remember this? He, he places before them this wildly important goal. We talked about wigs last week and the importance of, of these big goals and, and that to achieve a big goal like that, everything worth having is uphill. You guys remember this, like everything worth having, everything that's, that's good and beautiful and noble is going to come with struggle. So let's do it together. Let's be strong and courageous and do the work. Remember, that's, the, that's what uh, uh, King David told his son Solomon about building the temple. Be strong and courageous, but, but, but do the work. Today we're in uh, chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles, it'll also be on the, uh, on the screen there. I just want to walk through uh, a, a little bit of chapter 5, and then we'll spend some time talking about it. So lots of scripture. We're, we're a church. We believe in God's word. We believe in the power of God's word. 
In chapter 5, uh, we find that the, the wall is not quite completed yet. They've had opposition, they've, 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 they've had difficulty, but now maybe Nehemiah's toughest test comes because there is trouble in paradise. Look what it says in, uh, in chapter 5. Let's just start walking through some of these slides. The people begin to cry out. We have such large families. We need more food to survive. Others said, we, we've mortgaged our fields, our vineyards, and homes to get food during the famine. And others said, we've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay our, what's that word? We, we don't like it anymore today. Taxes. That's right. Let's keep going. We belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like theirs. Yet, listen, listen, to, the how, listen to the pain in this. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We've already sold some of our daughters, and we are helpless to do anything about it. For our fields and vineyards are already mortgaged to others. The tragedy of this cry, of this cry out, is that this is happening internally. It's not outsiders putting pressure, but, but this is Israelites charging crazy interest and taking advantage of other Israelites. In, this is like the group inside the wall that's building the wall or taking advantage of those who are working shoulder to shoulder with them. And it's to such a great extent that people are selling their own children into slavery. In verse 6, Nehemiah responds... Yeah, it says, when, when I heard these complaints, I was very angry. I, I don't think that probably does justice. If you guys read more about Nehemiah, uh, patience is not his strong suit. <laughs> but he was very angry. This is what happens next couple of verses in verse 7. He says, after thinking it over, like Nehemiah's, you know, the voice of Nehemiah's mom is obviously speaking to him. Hey, before you speak, you better think first. Think about these words. And he says, I spoke out against the nobles and the officials. He says, I spoke out against my people. And I told them, you're, you're hurting your own. You're hurting your own relatives by, by charging interest when they, when they borrow money. And he says, I'm going to call a public meeting and he gathers everybody together. He, he gathers the, the lenders and the debtors together. At, at the meeting, he said, we are doing all that we can to redeem our Jewish relatives who, who, have, who, have, who have had to sell themselves to pagan foreigners. But now you are selling them back into slavery again. And, and I love this, this, this question, just dripping with pain and anguish, but also sarcasm. How often must we redeem them? And they had nothing to say. Have you ever been in that spot? And they just bit their lip. Keep going. In verse 9, he said, I pressed them further. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of our God in order to, be, uh, to avoid being mocked by our enemies? What you're doing is not right. 
And so Nehemiah says, I'm going to set the example. And if you fast forward a little bit in verses 14 through 18, Nehemiah says, here's how this is supposed to work. I, I, look, look, I'm not just going to tell you what you need to do. I'm also going to give you an example to follow. And Nehemiah says in verse 14, he says, For the entire 12 years that I was governor of Judah, neither I nor my officials drew on our official food allowance. Like, okay, we could have taken food from the Jews. We could have taken food from the Israelites. In fact, it was due us. But in the entire 12 years we've been here, I never have. And he said, I know the former governors, in verse 15, laid heavy burdens on the people, demanding a daily ration of food and wine. Besides 40 pieces of silver, even their assistants took advantage of the people. But because I, what are those two words? Say it out loud. Because I, I did not act that way. In addition, not only did I not hurt them, I, I, I've devoted myself to this wig. Remember, we talked about wildly important goals last week. Man, I've been, I've been my purpose here has been about this wall, been about establishing, but, but not just the wall, this establishment of God's kingdom again. And he, and he says, I've asked for nothing, even though I personally fed 150 Jews, uh, 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 Jewish officials at my table, besides all the visitors from other Lands And then he goes back, or he says, I refuse to claim the governor's food allowance because the people already carried a heavy burden. Now let's go back to verse 10, I think. He said, I myself, as well as my brothers and my workers, have been lending the people money and grain. But now let us stop this business of charging interest. And then maybe the, the key verse of this whole section, verse 11. He says, you must restore. That's their job there, right? To, to restore Jerusalem, to restore a wall that had been collapsed, to restore God's kingdom. He said, you must restore their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their homes to them this very day and repay the interest you charged when you lent them money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. You must restore and the people in verse 12, this is the kind of leader Nehemiah is. Nehemiah said, I'm, here's what you should do. Here's the example I'm giving you to follow. And in verse 12, this is, this is pretty incredible. All the people, lenders and debtors, together in one meeting said, we will give back everything and demand nothing more from the people. We will do as you say. And Nehemiah says, I'm going to hold you to it. And he calls the priest, and, and he made the nobles and officials swear to God to do what they had promised. You guys like Nehemiah? Man, there, there is a lot to admire. I wish he was running for president, man. There would be, there'd be no doubt. As Nehemiah, there's, there's several things I want, to, I want to talk about out of this story, but Nehemiah... Um, he, he leads by example in, in almost everything. And, and his, his example almost always begins with prayer. Albert Schweitzer said, example is leadership. John Wooden said that the most powerful leadership tool you have is your own personal example. Is he right? Example is everything. It, is, it means to do what is right and not just what is easy. 
I love the story of the uh, of a young couple that uh, that visited Africa. Uh, they they went for their first time in the in the early '90s, and and it and it really changed their life. They uh they they had a good life, and and but when they went to Africa, it 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 sparked something in them because they they were kind of confronted with with a poverty and desperation on on, on a scale like like you can imagine. But, but never before imagined. And like Nehemiah, they, they heard the cries of the people. They, they heard specifically, I love in this story too, it's, it's really the cries of the women that Nehemiah hears. Cries he could have ignored, cries that others had ignored. But, they, but it's the women, it's the moms who are crying out. And Nehemiah hears those cries, and this young couple in Africa hears the cries of people, and they decided to do something about it. Uh, you may know them. They may seem familiar to you. Do you know who these two are? I know you probably know the one on the, on the right. That's Bill Gates. But along with him is his wife, Melinda. And in the 1990s, they went to Africa and changed their life. And they started uh, what's uh, it's called the Gates Foundation. Do you guys know about this? So it was built around a couple of ideas right, right out of their, their hearts being, being broken, hearing the cries of the people. They, uh, they called themselves impatient optimists. They, they, they saw what was going on, but, but also had this desire to change it, to rectify it, to, to make things right. And, and one of the core values of the Gates Foundation, and, and I love this, uh, it, it's on their masthead, it's on all of their stuff, but it, it's built on the, a fundamental principle that all lives have value. That every life is inherently valuable. And you can't say, well, this life is more valuable than this life. No, all lives have value. And, and, and I love that statement. The teenagers may remember, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so many times that idea, that statement, that foundational belief that all lives have value comes out in Jesus' teaching. I, I think it's probably one of his core teachings. That all lives have value. Value and the Gates Foundation is built around this idea. Warren Buffett, uh, a friend of the Gates, is also a contributor to this foundation. You guys, you guys know Warren Buffett? I think of him like Scrooge McDuck or like, you know what I'm talking about? Like that guy, like um, super wealthy. But Warren Buffett said, hey, if you start this foundation, I, I don't want you to go for any of the safe projects. If you're going to do this thing, I, I want you to take on the really tough ones. So I want to, I want to read you some numbers. This foundation started uh, uh, really uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and, and partly because of their effort, but, but because of a lot of other efforts also. But uh, I, I, want, I wonder if you knew this, that poverty worldwide in the last 25 years is down by half that children and infant mortality is down by half. So, so the number of children that have died in the last 25 years, those numbers are down by half due to, due to vaccines, due to things like, like uh, malaria bed nets. You guys remember we did bed nets not too long ago. Malaria bed nets, it's, it's, it's incredible how much impact that can have. Maternal uh, mortality, so not only were, were infants dying, but, but also moms were dying, is down by 43% worldwide. 
The, the proportion of undernourished people in our world is down by half. People in the working middle class, so it's so important to have a middle class because uh, when Bill and Melinda Gates, when they go to these places, when they go around the world, the, what's the one cry of every mom? What, do you know what it is? We want our kids to go to school. That's the, that's the one unifying cry of every single mom in our, in our world. We want our kids to go to school because if they can go to school, then maybe they could have a chance. They could have a chance at, at, at some sort of a, a better life. But what's the, one, the, the biggest uh, uh, hindrance to, to kids going to school worldwide? It's nutrition. Even if they could get to school, if, if they don't have anything to eat or drink, we see this in our own world, right? We see this in our own country. Even GraceWorks Ministries here in Williamson County, I think they do something like 1,200, uh, uh, um, oh, what do they call them, fuel bags every week to kids in our own community. Because if you can't eat, if you, if you aren't being nourished, then education is going to be impossible, and the proportion of undernourished people in our world in the last 25 years is down by half. The people in the working middle class uh, uh, has almost tripled. Uh, Bill Gates, personally, his goal is to eradicate polio completely from the world before his death. To completely eradicate it. And the Gates Foundation has special teams, so when polio shows up in some dark corner of the world, around a sewer, or around a, a really gross area of the world, they have action teams that immediately fly to wherever it is in the world and begin to give out polio vaccines to everyone in that area. His goal is to completely eradicate it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, they've got way more resources than I have. <laughs> I love what Warren Buffett said. He, he said, if, uh, if you have anywhere near close to a billion dollars, it's not going to hurt you to give away half of it. And so the Gates family, um, Bill and Melinda, have, uh, have made a personal commitment. Since their foundation started, they have personally contributed $28 billion dollars. To the foundation, just them. And they have committed 95% of their personal wealth to this foundation before they die. And because of their example, they've recruited, uh, a, a, I think the last numbers were 155 billionaires worldwide have made the same commitment. Pretty powerful, right? 155 billionaires have said, you know, I, I believe in what they're doing. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit my wealth to eradicating polio. I'm going to commit my wealth to this one idea that every life is valuable. Um, this is a statement you're not going to hear on the news. <laughs> The world is getting better. Think about some of those stats. Infant mortality, undernourished. We've got a long ways to go, but the world is getting better, and partly because of the Gates Foundation, partly because of a lot of things, but, but I, I think in big part because of the Gates Foundation. Because two people heard the cry of the oppressed. Because two people believed that every life has value.
because two people were willing to lead by example. I love in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story about a rich farmer. Maybe, uh, maybe you know this, this story. It's a man who, who has, a, has fertile ground, and, and he produces really fine crops. Uh, I, I mean, he does well. Uh, I, I don't know if he's got a green thumb or, or he's just blessed with great soil. But, but his harvest is so great that, in fact, he doesn't even have room for it all. So, so he says to himself, I, I know what I'll do. You guys know this story? He, he brings in more than he can store or, or build up, and he says, I, I know what I'll do. I'll just have to tear down my small barns, and I'm going to build big barns. I'm going to build Costco barns, right? They're going to be big. And then he says, and he says it just like this in Scripture in the Greek. He said, then I'll be set. I won't have any worries. I get these big barns. I, I, I load them. Man, man, things will be good, and I can just take it easy. And he literally says, I'll just eat, drink. And be merry. And God speaks to him. And he says, you fool. You will die this very night. And who will get all that you work for? And Jesus kind of gives us the moral to the story, the story that, it, that, that he's telling in, uh, in verse 21. Jesus, Jesus' own word says, a person is a, what's that word? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought it read American. Um, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Robert Dell, in his book, uh, to, to Dream Again, he asked a penetrating question. It's a penetrating question of, of all Christians. It's a penetrating question, question for our church. Uh, I, did I put it on the screen? Did, did I have a slide? Here's the question he asked. He says, are we to be a church of extended duration, or are we to be a people of imminent return? If you read the, about the church in the New Testament, it, it looks quite a bit different than our churches do today. Uh, in, in, in the very first part of Acts, right after the church is formed, it, you see people being generous on, on a scale, like really unfathomable. Like anyone who had need, if anyone had extra, they would, just, they would immediately just kind of, kind of pour into, into each other. They, they, they seem to, to give with, with this kind of abandon. And it's, it's partly because they lived with this idea that, hey, my, my job, our job as a church isn't just to be here the next day and the next day and the next day, but our job is to prepare for something that's coming. To live with this sense of imminent return. And, and the truth is, this day, this moment is all you get. Like sand through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives, right? Like, like they, they, sorry, that's a horrible reference. My mom just popped into my head. And the whole moment is gone. So what happens? What happens if, if, you, if you die? Or what, what happens if heaven crashes into earth? 
Like, that's going to happen, you know. And you and I, instead of seeing our neighbor or, or seeing others on the news screen, instead of seeing every life as valuable, as, as seeing every life as precious, what if, what if heaven crashes into earth and finds us holding the leash around our neighbor's neck? And I know what you're thinking. The, you know, the Nehemiah story, they were, they were charging crazy interest and they were forcing all these mortgages and all that kind of stuff. But I think Jesus takes that a whole step for, further in Luke 12. He says, hey, you know, just because you're not holding somebody's uh, note, what are you holding on to? If you've been blessed, shouldn't we be seeing every life as valuable? Are you, are you kind of committed to this long course, extended duration? Or, or, or is imminent return really something that, that's in, in your consciousness? Is imminent return really something you think about when you look at your checking account? Nehemiah put it this way. Do you remember what he said? He said, should you not walk in fear of the Lord? Bill Gates said, um, <laughs> related to his foundation, he said, I always wondered why somebody didn't do something about that. Then I realized that I'm that somebody. How often must we redeem them? Our fundamental purpose as, as a church, as Christians, is... Redemption is restoration, right? This, this is, this, these are the ideas that are, should be deeply ingrained in our hearts to, to see all lives as valuable, to see uh, the, this is an essential quality of a follower of Jesus. And, and, and I know, and, and maybe this is, this is too political, but, but our world is all about making divisions and making distinctions and I hate the distinction of us and them, but you hear that rhetoric all the time. And it is unbiblical. It's ungodly. We must begin to see every life as inherently valuable. Should we not walk in the fear of God? Maybe to help drive this point home, in, in 1 John 3.17, it says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Nehemiah tells the people you must. What's the word? Say it together. You must. You must restore their fields. You must restore their vineyards and olive groves, their homes this very day. How are you participating in this, this kingdom idea? 
How are you helping to, to establish God's kingdom here? How are you making things better? What kind of example are, are, are you setting? You, you, you can't spend time with God and not somehow gain a heart for people. So, so if, if you're still seeing people as more or less valuable, then we need to talk about your relationship with God. We talked about uh, in a series not too long ago, uh, we, we, we presented you this kind of bell series, and I know I keep coming back to it. I know one of our disciple groups is looking at it. But it was this simple idea like, hey, to be a follower of God, you know, we, it, it involves a lot of things, but what if it involved five things? What if you just blessed three people a week? Or, or, or uh, uh, what if you uh, uh, ate with three people every week? Would that change the way you see people? Would that change the way you see yourself and, and what, what you have and what you're holding on to and what you're storing up? Would it change your perspective about extended duration or, or imminent return? How are you making things better? I love that we've done uh, here in our church, even our small church, we've, we've given mosquito nets. We gave hundreds of mosquito nets away even this last year. We've contributed to, uh, to clean water and solar-powered lights and curriculum books, and, our, and we're teaching these values to our children, but how are we enacting them even more? What about, what about in, in our community? I know we just helped give back some, uh, we just gave backpacks to kids. Do, isn't that an act, act of restoration? Isn't that an act of, of redemption? How are you and your family participating in this, the, this movement of God's kingdom? How are you lending to others? Without expectation, practicing this kind of radical kingdom generosity. In just a few minutes, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And uh, uh, today, a, a couple of different things are going to be happening during this time. In fact, Richard, if you want to go ahead and come on back up here, brother. Let you get ready. I just want to share a couple of couple of thoughts as we wrap up this time. Hopefully, man, hopefully some stuff is stirring in your heart. But but really during this next kind of phase of our worship time, Richard's just gonna play some music in the background, but but really we're gonna create a space for a couple of things to happen at once. The first is we want to give you a chance to respond to God's word, uh, to to respond to this teaching. Um, maybe it's it's just a, a something that you need to confess and repent of man that's that's what we're here that's what we're here for this teaching's made me repent some thing repent of some things in my own life so if there's a, if God's calling you to uh, to this confession or repentance we're we're going to we want to receive you we we want to bless you we want to pray for you we want to we want to hear your confession this kind of this biblical idea of repenting to each other forgiving each other helping each other step into these things but we're also going to create a special time of prayer. Um, and, and not that this isn't always a time of prayer, but uh, we just want to create a special space for prayer. Uh, uh, we send out a kind of a, a, an internal prayer list every single week. And um, the, in, the, in the last week or so, last couple of weeks, that list has become really, really long. Uh, it, it's become painfully long, and it's included things like like hospital and visits and even end-of-life stuff, it includes this word again and again and again. It's a painful word. It includes the word cancer. 
And so I'm going to ask uh, just our shepherds to, uh, to come and maybe just you guys station yourself somewhere up near the front. If there's ways we can pray for you, if there's, if there's brokenness in you, if, if you're struggling with some stuff, there's, there's a couple of our folks, honestly, and, and I don't know how this makes you feel, but we're praying for miraculous healing for some of our folks. We are. And maybe that's something that you need. And, and what scares me about our prayer list, what scares me about our, our, uh, uh, the prayer requests we have is, is generally, the, generally the ones we don't know about are worse than the ones we do know about. So we're just going to invite you to a special time of prayer. Our shepherds are going to just move down here to the front. They want to, they, they've, uh, uh, I even made some copies of the list, guys, if y'all, if y'all don't have one. Um, I think they're sitting back there in the back. If there's ways we can pray for you. We, we, we want to do that. We're going to lift up this, this prayer list of, man, there, there's so much going on in our church right now that we need to be praying for, can be praying for. So um, give you a chance to repent, a chance to confess. A chance to pray for what's going on, and and then 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 the last thing is to to participate in a in a time of communion. So today's teaching was all about restoration and redemption, and and I wanted want you to know that because of your sin, you owe a debt. The wages of sin is death. Because of your sin, you you owe a debt you could not possibly pay. But still, it is a debt that has been paid for you. You have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I want you to, during this time of communion, as you take this cup, which represents the blood shed for you, and, and as you take this bread, which represents Christ's broken body for you, as, as, as you take these elements, I want you to eat and drink the redemption you've received through Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you are, are sitting here and God's spirit is moving in a powerful way. I, I hope that it is. Maybe you're ready to accept the price that Jesus has paid for you. Maybe you're ready to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Man, we, we want to accept you with open arms. Maybe you're ready to make that, make that proclamation that Jesus is Lord of your life. You're going to stop trying to build your, your own barns, but you're going to trust your future to Jesus Christ. You're going to trust your decisions and your checkbook and your life and your kids to him, and you're ready to give your life to him in baptism. And, and we want to do that. And we, we've, we've, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't have, the, I didn't bring a towel I didn't bring clothes. We got that cover. We're ready. We are ready. If you're ready to confess Jesus is Lord of your life in baptism, then, man, we want, we want to be here to receive you. And I'll move. I'll, I'll just be standing at the back ready to, uh, to pray for you, receive you, however we can. So you guys understand a couple of different things. Are you, are you okay with some different things happening at once? So I want you to eat and drink the redemption of Jesus Christ I want you to come and maybe spend a few moments with our shepherds huddled together in prayer. We, we believe deeply, powerfully in, in, in the power of prayer to change things, to change life, to, 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 to bring about the kind of kingdom that Jesus said is possible, to bring about that kind of life. And so I invite you to come and pray. I also invite you to confess and maybe, maybe make a commitment to be baptized today. So lots of things are happening. Let me say a prayer for us, and uh, Richard, if you want to go ahead and just start playing behind us, man, and uh, Father God, we love you so much. 
I thank you for your word. I thank you for, for the power of it. Even, even this word that you gave to Nehemiah so long ago, even his example seems so powerful and relevant even for us today. And uh, Father God, I pray that, that those parts of us, man, God, it creeps into my own heart how I, I begin to see myself as, as more valuable or more important or my schedule is more important or my time is more important than, than others, Father God. Even in these little ways, I, I begin to... to to, to undervalue or devalue those around me. And yet the fundamental teaching of, of, of your son Jesus is to love you and to love our neighbors. And so, Father God, I can't, I can't see someone as less valuable than me and still love them the way that you, you, you set the example for. And so, Father God, I pray that you would move, that you would move powerfully in us. Father God, we confess to you, and I'm not ashamed to say we confess, all of us, every single one of us, we confess to you that sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes it's been about, it's just been about us and our desire and, 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 and what we want. And so, Father God, change that part of us. Help us to see every life as valuable. Help us to lead others in example of, of generosity and kindness and charity. And Father God, let all of these actions be motivated by a personal redemption that we have received, each of us have received in the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Father God, I call for a change of heart. I call that, that, that this church wouldn't be a place of extended duration, but we would be motivated by a sense of imminent return. Father God, don't, don't come again and find our hands full. But find our hands empty because we've been generous, because we've been at work restoring, rebuilding, and redeeming. Father God, we love you. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, Amen. I dismiss you to a time of communion and prayer, repentance, and forgiveness. Yeah.